The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Dharma incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it. We can listen to it. We can embrace and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. The center I once glimpsed is all around me, a landscape I now live in, and I will not pretend anymore. If those I love cannot recognize me with my soul out in the open, I will no longer retreat and show what is familiar. You do not have to do anything to be loved. You do not have to perform or achieve or earn a merit badge or be witnessed doing good. It has taken me almost half a century to learn and believe this. It is my work to this day, for our messages to the contrary are deep. Growing up, I often heard my father say a thousand times, don't tell me how hard you try, just show me what you accomplish. But my life has shown me that the opposite is true. In my heart, where the spirit of the world really comes alive, it doesn't matter what I accomplish. The acolytes, the successes, the approvals, the acceptance, the only things that matter is how deeply I try, for out of this trying comes sincerity and love. This has led me to another realization of heart. Being who we are does not let others down. For much of my adult life, I've heard the message, you must consider others' opinions and feelings offered as a caution against following your heart because it might upset them. Certainly, true compassion begins with consideration of others, but the displeasure of others is no reason to retreat or to muffle your true beingness, your love. You do not have to do anything to be loved, and being who you are does not let others down. This needs to be repeated and often, 
Simply be who you are and love what is before you. Hello. <coughs> Welcome to Pinewind. Those of you who are here for the first time, those of you who have returned, welcome home. I am so happy to greet you here once again after several years of, as some of you know, uh, having these evenings in Cherry Hill. So welcome back to Pinewind. We've been waiting for you. So I always like to begin the talks by clarifying what tonight is about. And I want to begin by inviting you to be open to what you will hear tonight and what you will experience. Tonight is not about just what I said. In fact, as I have said now for nearly 40 years in March as a teacher, don't believe anything I tell you tonight. But don't also not believe it. Test it in your heart. Tonight is about you listening to what I have to say and comparing it to where the real source of tonight's message lies. It does not lie up here. It lies within you. So Buddha Dharma teaches us that the solution to all of our dissatisfaction at the level of stress and anxiety, at the level of constantly gaining and losing, whereby we are duped into the belief that if I only had, or if the world only was, that type of dissatisfaction where we find ourselves expecting and disappointed again and again and again. But the solution to all of that is a function of understanding first how the mind that is experiencing all of that is operating from moment to moment. It is a solution of understanding and operating daily from what we call reality and the real world. And a solution, and the solution is found in awakening to, remembering, realizing, enlightening yourself to your true nature. That being said, in the second noble truth, the Buddha said 2,500 years ago that all suffering at every level is a function of our conditioned tendency, our conditioned tendency to ignore all of that. When we talk about reality, when we talk about the real world, what I need to say to you is that the world we operate in daily, the world of coming and going, the world of pursuing objects, places, people, and things in order to be happy, the world of corporate profit and loss, the world of gain and loss on the individual or personal level is not the real world. And if you don't ever come to the distinction between the real world and that world which is the world we've created, <coughs> though we live in it as if it is the real world, I often find myself as just recently at Stockton University the other day talking to both collegiate and high school students. 
And I always make it a point to say to them, you've been told all of these years that you are being prepared to enter the real world and to live in the real world. That is a lie. You've been lied to. You are being prepared to enter the world we have created. And it doesn't make that world bad. It doesn't make it good. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it wrong. What it does make it is almost impossible to find any real contentment and satisfaction. And as they say, the beat goes on. We find ourselves regularly pursuing happiness. And as I've often said, we Americans have mastered the pursuit of happiness, but know very little about living life and freedom, real freedom. Because we find ourselves caught up in a unreality of constantly pursuing external sources for our happiness, believing that that's what life is about, believing that's what life is. So if we never make a distinction between the real world, which we'll talk about at length tonight, and the world we've created, we find ourselves lost and continually dissatisfied with those moments of satisfaction or happiness that we all want to experience, myself included, in our life. One of the reasons why it is essential that we awaken to the reality that the world we often consider to be the real world is a created or conditional world is that whatever has been created can be recreated. Whatever has been created can be recreated. But the work of recreating does not happen out here. We've been doing that forever. The way we often approach our dissatisfaction is a function of our conditioning. Our culture in that created world, the culture we live in day to day, none or very little, I'm sure, would be objectionable to me saying is a culture of fear. We live fearful each day of failure. We live fearful of not being approved, accepted. We live fearful of lack, or at least our perceived lack, in a universe that is marked by abundance, marked by plenty, and so forth. And that culture has taught us that the cause of our suffering, as well as the solution to that suffering, is always outside us. It's in people, it's in places, it's in things. It has to do with, again, how people behave around us, how much stuff we have consumed, uh, how many successes, whether others, like Mark Nepo's writing I just shared with you, points to, we are, cult we are conditioned early on to believing that our value, our beingness, our self-worth, is dependent upon other people accepting us, uh, embracing us, loving us, and liking us. And this is completely oppositional to all Buddha Dharma, which finds its ground, its roots, in what we call the real world, or in reality. So the first thing I want you to hear tonight is that 
in order to come up with the solution for your own dissatisfaction. Again and again, I have said this for 40 years, you must have the willingness to make some changes. And the change that you need to be willing to uh, face and make happen in your life has to do really with where you have your attention, where you focus your awareness and your attention. And we'll talk more about that tonight. So I challenge you by asking you this question. What if you were enough? What if this moment you were to simply declare, I am enough? That my life is enough? That the world just as it is, and again, I'm talking about the real world. And if you're having difficulty accepting the notion that the world, the real world, is enough, that is a function, again, as I said a moment ago, of our delusion or our optical delusion, which is what Einstein called it, that the real world is the world of profit and loss, lack and gain, losing and gaining, and so forth. I'm talking about the real world. What would your life be like if tomorrow morning you woke up different in this way? Tonight you made up your mind you were enough. What would change for you? What would be different? How would you manage that and sustain that? And that's what we're going to take a look at tonight. All Buddha Dharma, all Buddhist teachings find as their ground, as its roots, what we call fundamental goodness. That is to say, each and every one of us, each and every human being that exists on the planet at this time has ever existed and ever would exist in the days ahead, possess what we call a basic goodness. It is inherent. We are born with completeness. We are born with everything we need to achieve, and you need to hear this, the only thing we will ever be perfect at, and that is being you first. That's the first part of the that's the first component to this paradigm we're developing. Second component, your real sustainable happiness is a function exclusively a function. It depends on nothing else but you achieving an awareness of who you truly are in your lifetime and being that throughout your lifetime throughout your lifetime. So here are two components you need to really take a look at. Because again, our conditioning has taught us that our happiness is dependent on everything but that. When we talk about being who we are and we're willing to be honest, and if you're not willing to be honest tonight, you're welcome to leave now because you're not going to get any of this. Okay? So when we're willing to be honest, our conditioning has taught us that our happiness is a function of meeting 
prescribed expectations, beliefs, opinions, dreams, hopes, and goals that have been laid down for us and given to us in our lifetime. So as I've been known to be on occasion both facetious and sarcastic, I will ask you, how's that working for you? I'm saying. The truth of the matter, whether realized in this moment or not, our happiness exclusively and singularly has always been what it has always been, a function of our beingness. Shakespeare Buddha says, to thine own self be true. And from that honesty, from that commitment, from that loyalty to oneself, everything else flows, he says. And this is fundamental Buddhist teachings, fundamental Buddha Dharma. We are born not with original sin or original failure or original lack, but rather we are born with an inherent original basic goodness. We are born loving. We are born lovable. We are born capable. And the fact is that every single one of you in this room, myself included, are able to be perfect at one thing. And no one can beat us at it. No one can be better at it than us. And that is being who I truly am, who you truly are. And that perfection is the source and the solution of our happy, for our happiness. Nothing else will make us happier. Nothing else is more desirable. From early on, the evidence is when we observe children all the way into adulthood, but we forget it, we get again caught up in the conditioning of our life, which we'll take a look at more in a moment. We kind of get confused about our dissatisfaction. But early on, you can see it in children. They're not confused. They know exactly what makes them happy to be able to be who they are. And when you try to stop them from being who they are, they become troublemakers. And they become troublemakers because they know their life sustenance is dependent upon their freedom to be who they truly are. And early on, you and I, as Mark Nepo points out in his own experience of life in the writing that I shared with you, we are taught to become everything else but who we truly are from early on, from early on. So Zen spirituality, authentic spirituality, and I always add that because I want the audience to understand that I have been doing this for 40 years and much of my work has been about what I call spiritual myth-busting. And another cultural conditioning that most people in the West who turn to spirituality as a means for their happiness, another myth of, a West, of the Western culturized spirituality is that spirituality has to do with appeasing that part of our consciousness that tends to always be dissatisfied. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. You know saying? Authentic spirituality teaches us that part of the training, part of what we need to remember, 
relearn and understand has to do with the distinction between what Zen calls our conditioned self and our true self. And most of us are operating from moment to moment on a daily basis from this conditioned self. This self I call myself, who I refer to when I say me, when I say I, when I say myself, this self, Zen teaches, is the conditioned self, or as I often say, the person we've become in life. Early on in our life, we are conditioned to become this kind of ideal of a person. We are told early on that if you want people to like you, fill in the blank, if you want to be accepted, fill in the blank, if you want to be successful, fill in the blank. And early on, we come to believe this for what I consider to be obvious reasons, maybe not so obvious. As a parent of a five-year-old who I adore and worship and who I have gone to great lengths from the moment I've been able to communicate with her at a level that she can comprehend to empower her to remain true to this self. I'm beginning to see at five that shift take place for her. I can't protect her from the culture we live in. She goes to school like we all did and there's nothing I can do once she leaves the monastery. But when she comes home to her father in the time that, he, that she's with me, Every evening, as some of you know, she has been taught from the moment she's been able to comprehend language and speak it to recite four mantras that I created for her. Every night she says, I am wonderful. I am beautiful. I am capable. I am loved. And she cannot go to sleep until she recites that. And when we began to talk about the meaning behind them so that she understands exactly what she's reciting and the purpose of that, as we began to talk about that, she became more and more aware, particularly of the one I <coughs> emphasize the most, which is her capability. I want my daughter to always remember that she already possesses everything she needs. She is capable and will continue to be capable as long as she's true to the other three mantras which have to do with being true to herself, to not look outside herself for wonder, to not look certainly at our culture that expects women to look this way to be beautiful and to certainly not look for love any further than the love that she has blessed me with in the last five years and continues to. I want her to know that, but I can see her already forgetting some of that. It is inevitable that it happens to us. But somewhere along the line, someone, some event, something scares us out of our inherent knowledge that we are born with, that we are already perfect and complete. Children know that. That's why they don't get too concerned. The examples I've often used is, you know, the first time she threw up on me, I noticed that she didn't apologize. 
neither did she get fearful that I was going to throw her out, you see. It was kind of like she threw up and she was completely indifferent and it was up to me to clean up my mess. I often use the example of the fact that she pooped in her diaper regularly and didn't get shameful of it, didn't feel terrible about it. And my experience with adults are that if you were to do that in this room tonight, you'd be more concerned about others knowing you did that than cleaning yourself up. Think about that. You see? I mean, hell, when we just release gas, we look over to the left. He did that. <laughs> Not me. I don't release gas. I somehow consume it and recreate it in my body. You see? I mean, that's how subtly profound our fear of others' approval of us, and you need to see, manages us. It manages us in ways that we never consider. As I often say to people, if you never do the work of your conditioning, working on that, and, uh, and discovering those mental and psychological barriers you have built over in your lifetime, built up in your lifetime, preventing you from being truly you, you go through life thinking you made that choice when you didn't make that choice. You go through life thinking that I decided when it wasn't your decision. Our conditionally, our conditioning literally determines not only how we experience ourselves right now, how we experience ourselves in relationship to others, how we experience ourselves in relationship to the whole world, but it literally decides for us predetermines for us what we are permitted to. What we are permitted to. It goes that the work of any authentic spiritual practice, such as Zen, that is exclusively dedicated to liberating the individual from the cause of suffering. And the cause of suffering, the Buddha said, is ignorance. We are, first of all, ignorant of who we truly are and what we truly are and what the world truly is. And second, we ignore our inherent basic goodness and accept the myth, the lie, the deception that life is about becoming more, becoming better, becoming different. And that is the characterization of the vicious cycle we find ourselves living in. And vicious it is because it harms us and it harms those we love. It harms us because we become so stressed out about achieving it and, and wanting it so bad that we find our bodies become ill and tired and weak and we don't have the energy or the strength to keep up with what really matters. And it harms others because we will sacrifice precious time we lose in the pursuit of happiness that could be used in being happy with ourselves, our families, our friends, and life. So the first step is to be honest about that. The first step is to be honest about the fact that, again, this culture we live in, as I often say, is not conducive for happiness and well-being. And if you are going 
To resolve that for yourself, I remind you of the final words of the Buddha shortly before he died, that he spoke to his monks. And they are the first words we chant and recite in a liturgy in Zen monasteries all over the world. Atta Dipa, which translated means rely on yourself. You are the Dharma, he said. You are the light. You are the solution. Rely on yourself. If there is any lesson, the madness and uncertainty, the compounded suffering we see globally going on has to offer us, the message for me is clear. Atta Deepa. It's up to you. You must resolve your suffering yourself. Atta Deepa. When we talk about loving oneself, as we are the topic this evening, falling in love with yourself, when we talk about truly loving oneself, it is not some kind of sentimentality that we're talking about. It's very much like the love I'm trying to teach again my daughter. When I say to her, Daddy absolutely loves you, but Daddy doesn't always feel that way, you see. But I promise you I will always do my best to be that way. But you need to know that I don't always feel I absolutely love you. Sometimes I feel like I absolutely need to give you back to your mother, you see, like that. So when we talk about love at the enlightened level, it is something far more profound and deeper than some sentimental experience, than the feeling or the emotion. Certainly, feelings and emotions are attached to this we call love. But love is sourced in something much deeper and much more profound than the sentiment. So when we talk about falling in love with ourselves, we're talking about something that, again, has to do with how we live from moment to moment. Loving other people, the Buddha said, is not possible. We never fully love others in the way that makes relationships work and, and sustainable and fulfilling unless we love ourselves first. There's a simple mathematical equation there, simple scientific explanation. I can only give you what I have. If I don't have it, how can I give it to you? And so when Buddhism talks about compassion, when Buddhism talks about loving others, it begins with first loving oneself. Therefore, it is essential quintessential that my spiritual work is about learning to love myself. The Buddha wrote these words. You can travel around the world to search for someone more lovable than yourself, and yet that person is never to be found. You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. And so if I'm ever going to be truly compassionate and loving towards others, it begins with being truly compassionate 
and loving towards myself. But as I said a moment ago, we're not just talking about a sentimentality here, a feeling, an affection for myself. We're not talking about that. We're talking about what and how we, how, first of all, how we approach living our life in the world. And I've given you a clue already that that approach must be sourced in authenticity, must be sourced in bringing to life from moment to moment, bringing to life from moment to moment an authentic and genuine self, who I truly am, who I truly am. One of the things that I've learned being a parent uh, over the past five years, both through direct experience and listening to professionals involved with you know, psychology with children and all, is that I repeatedly hear in those circles and repeatedly witness the fact that I can't con my daughter. Children cannot be conned. They know when you're bringing authenticity to them. They know when you're being genuine. And so do you, but you ignore that. You know, that intuitive voice that warns you, there's uh, something not right here about him, or there's something not right there about them. But for whatever reason, we ignore that. And again, remember, the second noble truth says to us that, that the cause of our suffering is the fact that we ignore that. We ignore our own voice for the voices of others. But the Buddha says that our voice, our intuitive awareness is just as important, as wondrous, as capable, as powerful as anyone else's. Even the Buddha himself concluded all of his teachings in his lifetime by warning people, do not believe me, do not rely on the fact that I said that alone. Look at it for yourself. And he would go on to say to them, if for some reason it doesn't fit for you, forget about it. Move on. Move on. Time and time again, the Buddha Dharma teaches us that the source, the ground for our ability to interact, sustain, and experience fulfillment in our relationships with others is a function of, again, how we hold ourself, how we rely on ourselves, believe in ourselves, and trust ourselves. Now, you might think, after years and years and years of maybe low self-esteem and self-doubt and all of that, this is going to be a difficult matter to resolve. Not if you trust me. And here's what I mean. There's only one reason, and again, the second noble truth points to it. That is difficult for us, and that is we keep accepting and embracing the created world as the real world. We keep accepting the conditioning as true. We keep accepting the opinions, whether they be negative or, or even malicious or abusive, as true, especially the ones early on, when we take a look at the process, if you will, that led us to this stuckness as adults, it begins early on with our parents, who again didn't know who they were, you're saying. There's nobody to blame here 
It's just important that we understand that early on, the messages, the communications, the behaviors of our parents literally shape and form what many of us come to believe is who we truly are. And one of the problems for children when it comes to their relationships with their parents, and this was your problem and my parent, my problem is that we see our parents as God. We believe everything that comes out of their mouth. We believe every teaching to be godly. Children view parents as God. They have the food, they have the power, they have the money, they have the house. We are completely dependent upon them until we realize our own ability to go out and make our own money and get our own food and our own house and so forth. But early on, the emotional ties with our parents become so powerful that again, even those messages that were grounded in an ignorance of their own true nature continue to affect us into adulthood. What is necessary, as I said, if we are going to characterize or identify the work to turn this around for ourselves, has to do with, again, redirecting our focus and attention away from external messages or messengers and back to ourselves, listening to our heart within or what some therapists often refer to as the child within, the small child. We need to live and practice in a way where we stop rejecting our own voice for the voice of others. But we need to do it in a way that again is authentic and honest. An important core teaching in Buddhism is self-love. Buddha teaches that you love the self before extending any capable love to others. In other words, before you are able to be a love luminary, you must have the capacity to embrace yourself fully. And what will be needed to turn this around after a lifetime of kind of like rejecting yourself, putting yourself second, putting your voice after other voices, as I said a moment ago, and the various ways that we do that, is going to require radical approach. Radical approach. Some complacent trying it once in a while is not going to work here. So for example, and I'll get into more details shortly, by radical approach I mean this. You must be willing, you can begin by being willing to start right now, to declare right now, that going forward, any self-criticism, any self-judgment is rejected. One of the exercises I've given students over the years is that whenever a critical thought about yourself or others show up, just simply notice it and say, ah, oh, another lie, another lie. When you do the work of real meditation, you'll be surprised how much of the thoughts in your head are nothing more than just that. Lies that you've accumulated over the years and have accepted and embraced as true. But when you really do the work of looking at them, you discover, what's up with that? You see? The search is not external, but internal. 
So the first radical step is to reject all future self-criticisms and it must include criticisms of others. Why? We criticize others only because we don't like who we are. I see you in direct proportion to how I see me. So it goes that the most important thing you have to offer me in a relationship is your happiness. The most important thing when I do parent, uh, parenting seminars, I talk about this, the most important thing you have to offer your child is your own happiness and well-being. When children see parents truly happy and content, they naturally are happy and healthy and wholesome. When you find happy, healthy, wholesome children, you will find happy, healthy, wholesome parents. And the opposite is also true. So the first thing to do is to stop the bureaucracy of ego, the mechanics of that bureaucracy, by thwarting all future self-criticisms and judgments. And it must include criticisms and judgments of others because those criticisms and those judgments are never about them, it's about how I feel about me. When I love me, you look entirely different. When I don't like me, you're in trouble. <laughs> because, again, what has my conditioning taught me? That this dissatisfaction within me, you're causing it. It's an external issue. It must be what you're doing, you're saying, your behavior. It's the world that will not devote itself to making me happy. That's what it is. So whenever I am critical of you, it's an internal issue. It has to do with how I am feeling at that moment, perceiving at that moment myself. So the search, we must redirect our focus on searching internally rather than externally. We have to stop looking for love and happiness and wholeness in the, all the wrong places we've been looking. You are never going to find it. When people say to me, love is out there somewhere, I ask them, go get it and bring it back here. <laughs> happiness is out there somewhere, I ask them, go get it and bring it back here. Let me see. You first must find it within yourself. And here's the difference again between what I call authentic spiritual practice and again our conditioned, our Western cultural spirituality we often find. The work of spirituality, spiritual practice itself, is not about adding new knowledge, new anything. It's not about gaining anything and adding that on to ourselves. Real spirituality is about stripping away. Stripping away. Because again, if you've been listening, fundamental to all Buddha Dharma is that we are born enlightened. We are, not, we are not practicing and training here to become a Buddha, to become enlightened, but to realize our inherent enlightenment, to manifest that in the world. And the way we accomplish that is by stripping away all of the psychological 
emotional, physical, spiritual barriers that we have accumulated and constructed over the years that prevent us from knowing that intimately and expressing that in the world, bringing that in the world. In the topic of sustainable and fulfilling relationships, what is essential in managing that has to do with the question, what are you bringing to the relationship each moment? What is it you are bringing to the relationship? What is it they are bringing to the relationship? But first and primary, what is it that I bring to relationships? This is true about our relationship with spiritual practice. <coughs> what is the attitude you bring to meditating, for example? Meditation, which we will again hear tonight, as I say to you, one of the essential elements of sustaining self-love has to do with the practice of meditation. And most people find it difficult to sustain a meditation practice, not because meditation practice is inconvenient and all the other reasons we give to it, but because of our attitude we bring to loving ourselves. I tell you, meditation is absolutely essential for your life. Your life depends on it. If you have a difficult time practicing from here on in, it doesn't have to do with your disbelief of that. It has to do with your disbelief that your life matters enough to do what you need to do to sustain and empower and to keep it alive and whole. To love the self is to be in continuous connection with your true essence. To love yourself requires creating a life style that is conducive for who you truly are to be alive, to be in the world. Love of self and love of <coughs> others is a function of beingness. If I love you, I want you to be. Because isn't that who I say I love? If I love you, I want you to be. Isn't that who I say I love? You see? And loving myself is a function, and sustaining that love is a function of me being more and more and more who I truly am in the world. And not who others may expect me to be, not who my conditioning has trained me to be, but who I truly am. But more than that, the statement I just shared with you speaks about essence, or what, again, we call in Zen one's true nature, one's original self. Being in connection with that. So we're talking about being in connection with your own inherent lovability. Being in connection with your own inherent loving nature. We are born inherently to love and to be loved. Now that's a romantic term for what really means to connect and belong. To connect and belong. As my friend Len will tell you, because he was there too, he 
brought her into the world. I watched him do it. From the moment I saw my daughter come out of her mother's womb, and they handed her to me, and then I handed her to her mother, she did two things immediately. She reached out and grabbed me there, and when I laid her onto her mother, she curled in on her own, into her, to belong to her too. Anyone who's ever witnessed it, as Dr. Len has for so many years, will tell you, that is a common reality. That is a common thing that happens. From early on, from the very beginning, we belong. We are hardwired to belong. And so when we talk about self-love, one of the essential markings of loving oneself is how we create conducive environments for belonging, for relationship, for connection, not only with other human beings, but what we haven't really talked about yet and will at great length, hopefully before you leave tonight, with the natural world. And there's a reason why we need to stop playing around with this as a political topic. The natural world, each of us are a part of. We human beings, because of our arrogance, like to think we exist separate from the natural world, and we do not. We do not. And I can give you numerous examples to prove that to you, if you need the proof. But if you've ever taken a walk in the woods, in the mountains, near the ocean, if you've ever connected with nature, you know the result of that connection. There's a reason for that. It is inherent for us to want to return to our source, to belong. So belongingness is part of our essential nature a sense of belongingness. We have seen in our culture, I have mapped it for approximately the last maybe 50 years, an individualism in our American culture that has reached the level of the pathological. And that is primarily the cause of so much polarization in this country. We say we are the United States of America and we act as if we're not. We act as if we're not because we don't understand that it is essential, it is our essence, it is our true nature to want to be part of, to belong to, and to have others belong to also with us. You learn to accept, appreciate, and affirm who you truly are. So we radically begin to accept everything about ourselves. This might surprise you, maybe not. I don't recall a time in my life where I've ever judged myself for any of my failures, ever. Maybe that's why I'm up here. I don't recall a time in my life where I spent a moment feeling shameful about any of my lackings or failures. You see? Somewhere in my life I became convinced that if I wasn't going to be my best friend, who was? You're saying? Who was? To accept yourself fully. A lot of people come to me in private counseling and they'll say to me, my life feels incomplete. And I say to them, because it is. Because it is. 
because most of us spend our lives embracing only the positive and rejecting the negative. If you only like the good stuff about yourself, only love yourself when you're behaving the way you should, then you can expect to be happy 50% of the time because I guarantee you 50% of the time you're going to mess up. You see? You're going to disappoint somebody. You're saying. So when we talk about radical approach, the, again, one of the radical approaches is, again, all self-criticism and criticism and judgments of others cease. And that involves embracing yourself when you're right and when you're wrong, when you've succeeded and when you failed. And if you ever talk to any of the so-called successful people in life, the first thing they will tell you when, you when you ask them what is the secret, they will say, you must not be afraid of failure. You must not fear failure. If you fear failure, you will never know what it is to be successful. So most of us, when we again do the work of studying ourselves and what's motivating us, most of our goals and objectives are motivated by this fear of failure. And that's why either we never achieve them, or when we do, they're not satisfying. You see? They're not satisfying. When you connect from the inside, you experience the unfolding of your inherent wisdom. An inability to experience true self-love leads to love as something conditional. So, when we talk about the conditional self, and again, this is a good time to identify the conditional self. So the conditional self is this. It's the self that says, I'm happy. It's the self that says, I'm not happy. It's the self that says, I like. It's the self that says, I don't like. It's the self that says, if only, it's the self that says, when this happens. We call that the conditional self because every one of those conclusions require what? Conditions. What? what? Conditions. Conditions. When we look at our idea of happiness, our idea of happiness is conditional. That is to say, if you want to be happy, you need particular conditions for that to happen. So if you want to know whether you're going to be happy tomorrow when you go do this, look for those conditions. If they're not going to be there, don't expect to be happy. I call that a stupid way to live. This first came to me, believe it or not, from a source outside of the Buddhist community came to me by, from a guy named Abraham Lincoln. Someone who I've been fascinated with my entire life and read everything I could get my hands on about. And one day I read that Abraham Lincoln, they know today, suffered from manic depression, bipolar, his wife was mentally ill, not to mention the Civil War. You know and you know what he said? I believe that people are as happy as they choose to be. 
Can you imagine that? What did Abe know that we don't know? You know what I'm He knew that conditional happiness was not for him. And the Buddha Dharma teaches us that the happiness we seek is not conditional. It is not a function as to whether or not certain conditions are present or not present. When you live conditional, you must expect the conditions you lay down as necessary for your happiness. And those conditions are yours, not mine, are yours. We talk a lot about unconditional love, but when push comes to shove, it's just a talk. The way we often love ourselves is conditional, is conditional. The way we often love others is conditional. To love unconditionally, which is the, you know, the, big, the big ideal, it's the supreme love, we talk about it that way, and it is, is just that, to love without conditions. Happiness is a choice. It has to do with what we are bringing to the moment. And when I bring certain expectations, which is synonymous with the term condition, when I bring certain conditions or expectations to the moment, what I experience, what I am permitted to experience, is a function of those expectations and conditions. Is a function of those expectations and conditions. When I ask you the question, what if you were enough? In order for you to experience that about yourself, because that is what's true about you, you are enough. You were born perfect and complete. No one can be you. No one can do it the way you've done it. No one ever will be able to be you or ever be able to do it the way you've done it. No one. My daughter is so much like me, it's scary, but she can't do it the way I do it, and I can't do it the way she does it. You see? Your inherent reality is perfect and complete. In order to love yourself conditionally, that is the place you need to begin to operate from. I don't need to prove anything to me or to anyone else. I was born a Buddha. It's like I tell my students, remember, when they leave here, I tell them, remember, you're a Buddha. Act accordingly. Make choices accordingly. Live accordingly. Let me know how that works for you. Any questions? Hi, Ellen. Don't you think we all make judgments because kind of we learn from noticing and observing? Well, maybe I don't like the word judgment. Maybe I like the word observing more than judging. So which word do you mean? Observing doesn't require me to say anything about the moment, person, place, or thing. Judging requires me to make a conclusion about the moment, person, place, or thing. So which one are you referring to? Which one do you mean? I can observe and have, nothing, have no opinion about the observation, mm -hmm. which is where I want to be if I ever want to be free. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, I'll tell a story in a moment, but I want to be clear about what you're asking. Yeah, I think when I'm observing something, I'm more afraid than when I'm judging. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that's a good 
we judge ourselves and others, the environment, the circumstance and situation for one reason. We have been conditioned to do that. We have been conditioned to do that. When I lose connection with myself, I have, you know, I, like I said, I see Katie starting to shift at five, but she hasn't gotten to the point where she's ever uttered a critical remark about anybody yet. Okay? So I've been with someone now for five years that never remarks about anybody else. That's how we start. If that is true, and it is true, then obvious our judgments and criticisms are what we learn. Okay? I think I can say that about my nine-year-old granddaughter, too. I've never heard her say anything critical about anybody. Right, so somewhere along the line... But she might might, um, describe them or talk about their behavior, but it's not a question of right or wrong. Yeah, and that's the difference between observing Mm -hmm. and judging and criticizing. Mm -hmm. Okay? So the role of the enlightened being is always to observe without conclusion about the observation, the object of our observation, if you will. All right? So what's important here is that, again, we see that we learn to be that way. And if we learn to be that way, we can unlearn that. Okay? But we need to unlearn it the way we've learned it so well. Because it's almost second nature, it's automatic, okay? And that is what we call habit, okay? So we've learned to be judgmental and critical habitually. How do we unlearn that? By behaving in ways that are the opposite habitually. That's why, you know, this is a work that involves engagement on my part to be mindful of what I'm doing and to stop the cause before it becomes an effect, like that. So, there's a wonderful Zen story that I've often told and enjoy telling, so that's why I'm going to tell it, because I get enjoyment out of telling it. (laughs) And it's a story about the uh, Roshi, or Zen master, after a long period of intensive meditation, we call him Zen Orohatsu Sashin, which is coming up in a few weeks in December, um, which is a long period of meditation. So this particular session was over and the master and one of his students takes a walk into the mountains and the student had a very bliss- blissful awakening during session. And so he's communicating this to his teacher. He's saying, oh, master, isn't the world wonderful? Isn't the Buddha Dharma wonderful? And he's going on and on and on about the beauty of the sky and nature and the sounds of the birds and all of that. And his master's not saying anything. And finally he gets irritated by that and he says, master, don't you agree? And the master turns to him and says, yes, but it's a shame you have to say so. It's a shame you have the need to say so, is what he was saying. That you feel a need to confirm or conclude this about what is naturally evident. You're saying, what is naturally so. Of course it's beautiful. But what is that about you that you feel you need to do that? What is it about us that we feel the need to be critical toward ourselves and others? And again, 
that motivation is rooted in this conditioned self that we continue to mistake in as who we are and continue to nurture and empower. And that's what we're talking about tonight when we talk about redirecting our focus from appeasing that self, learning how to do that. And that's what spiritual training is about. You come here, we train you with the tools to turn that conditioned bureaucracy around where we're no longer appeasing that self, nurturing it and cultivating the ground for its survival, but focused on that liberated self you truly are and nurturing that and cultivating the ground for that to be in the world. You became this person so well and so uh, integrated into that whole bureaucracy of ego so well by habitually living that way. Now you need to habitually live this way if you're going to turn that around. And if you're not willing to do that, nothing changes. Nothing changes. Because most of the time you don't know you've even done it, do you? Until you feel the effect of it. You know? Sicilians are good at that. Sicilians say things and say, I didn't say that. <laughs> After they've crushed someone with their words. My mother was Sicilian, for those of you who don't know. I love her dearly, but she was Sicilian. <laughs> Any other questions? Thank you, Ellen. You know, I think what you did for me tonight was you gave me an action plan. You showed me to keep my mouth shut more, listen and observe without, like that was my question. How do we, where do we draw the line between observing and judgment? And you told me to keep my mouth shut. Yeah, there's a wonderful Korean Zen master uh, who says to his students regularly, always remember the moment you open your mouth, you're wrong. Okay. Right. So yes, and that's where the practice, when you come here to train, you, you, you're, most of your training is in silence. And there's a reason for that. To, become, to re-familiar yourself. My daughter understands silence. She knows what's like, no big deal for her and what have you. We are familiar with it from birth. We embrace it in the crib. We embrace it in our sleep. We don't toss and turn and have nightmares like adults do when we're that age and so forth. Uh, and that's, you know, again, so the training towards that does involve you. Yeah, keep your mouth shut. The moment you open it, you're wrong. And the moment you, and now, again, before it comes to speech, it originates as thought. So the part of the training is you learn here how to disengage from indulging that story, that thought. But it takes training because we've learned it by training ourselves to habitually react to that deluded impulse, if you will. So now we need to relearn it by habitually applying the teachings to those moments. No matter how righteous I may feel and how, you know, uh, in righteous indignation may be going on for me. Shut up. <laughs> like that. Okay. Yeah, that's it. Any other questions? 
Unconditional love and compassion are divine qualities of your intrinsic nature. You were born with the quality of unconditional love towards yourself and others. Because of the world we've created, because it is so dangerous, the evidence of what I just said is in the horrible fact that we need to teach children that they can't trust everybody. You see? Because they do. We are born with unconditional acceptance of the world, unconditional acceptance of ourselves and of others. And it is a sad commentary of the created world, and that is the only reason why. Could you imagine what the world would be like if we didn't have to teach those lessons? If we could always come from that unconditional trust and unconditional loving. You see? So part of our inherent and intrinsic qualities are what Buddhism refers to as those divine qualities, those enlightened qualities. Among them is love and compassion. We don't need to teach love and compassion until the being has forgotten or disconnected from those inherent qualities. But those inherent qualities, our basic goodness, never leaves us. We don't fall from grace, for example, ever. We just forget. We become ignorant of that. And the process in Buddhism is to awaken from our forgetfulness. And once we awaken from the forgetfulness, the next step is sustaining that awareness. And that awareness can only be sustained the same way our ignorance has been sustained, and that is creating a conducive environment within ourselves and within our immediate environment that supports and sustains that awareness, that supports and sustains that awareness. So again, another Zen story is about the young student that asks the master, you know, what follows enlightenment? What comes after enlightenment? They all said the same thing. 10,000 more hours of meditation. That's what comes. Because without a conducive environment, if we just go back to the old habitual ways, and this is one of my arguments with contemporary spiritual people. You know, we, we spend a day, again, the masters say, a day, a day of lying and pilfering meditation will not cure. Neither will yoga or anything else. So, you know, we, we practice spirituality as a supplement, the way we, you know, take, you know, herbs to lose weight but still eat the wrong stuff, you're saying. I always tell the story about my dear friend DePaul, who uh, I love the, the kajillions out of. And we used to always go to lunch when he was living in this area with me and working with me at Francis' house. He was a Franciscan friar. Jovial, round, loving, funny guy. And we would always go to the same uh, diner for lunch, and he would always order the same thing. Fried clams, okay? <laughs> Fried clams in the basket, garlic bread, and uh, a Diet Coke. <laughs> and I would say to him, why, why did you order a Diet Coke? Well, I'm losing weight. <laughs> I'm trying to lose weight. <laughs> And that's how we practice spirituality, you know? We continue to engage in ways of being in the world most of our day and then say, well, I gotta go meditate. I gotta go do yoga to feel better. And that's why 
It doesn't work for you or for the world. Self-realization is key. All self-love, all love for others, the solution for global peace and the end to the causes of suffering is a function of self-realization. When individuals start to awaken to who they truly are and bring that true original self to life every day, the world will change. This means that you are to awaken into love on an experiential basis. And that's the difference again between Western understanding of spirituality and Eastern understanding. Eastern understanding as in Zen is experiential. Through meditation and through lifestyle, particular lifestyle, we can experience these intrinsic, these inherent qualities. Just talking about them, just saying, I believe everybody's Buddha, well, if that worked, then I would say that and head for the uh, beach, if you will, you see. Just reading it, just positive thinking, for example, or just saying that every time doesn't work. When we have experienced it directly, when we know it for ourselves intimately, something naturally starts to transform. We don't have to manipulate the transformation. It naturally takes place because what we have done is we've awakened, we've awakened those inherent and natural qualities. You are to actualize it with your own experiencing. As it has been often pointed out, the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon. All in Buddha's tech te teachings involved an existential approach rather than through abstract understanding via it religious or philosoph philosophical abstraction. So it's not enough to read this stuff. It's like riding a bike. You don't know how to ride a bike until you've gotten on the bike and you've ridden it. You can read about it and that's fine, but it doesn't get you to the bike. From self-love, you lay the ground for the expression of compassion for others. You tune into the sense of shared humanity. You recognize that others are no different from yourself, that we all desire to love and to be loved. Everyone is going through essentially the same pain and sorrow, regardless of the specific packagings of external circumstances. You extend to others what you would extend to the self. By opening your heart, you gain a gentle yet powerful connection with others. If you're not open to yourself, you will not be open to others. You can only give what you have. You can only give what you have. Those of you who grew up in, in, you know, in my generation might remember the uh, uh, hit regular show Kung Fu when it was on television with uh, David Carradine, you know, and he, put, he was a Shaolin monk who finds himself in America around the Western days, the cowboy days, going from town to town, being rejected and beaten up, okay? And whenever he would use his kung fu on somebody, he would throw the cowboy across the saloon, for example, very easily, you know, just fly, and the cowboy would land on the other side, and David Carradine would say, he doesn't know how to fall. Doesn't know how to fall. And that was as far as his judgment would go. Doesn't know how to fall. Does not know how to fall. Loving the self enhances your ability to send love or metta to others, generating energy that is real, pure, and transformative. Hatred can never be ceased by hatred, the Buddha said. 
it is ceased only and alone and exclusively by love. Any questions? So we're going to take a break, let you enjoy the refreshments and each other's company, and I hope that you do that, take the time to get to know each other. Then we'll come back in and I will lay down some more of the action plan, did you call it? Uh, yeah, the action plan. We'll call it the plan of action. Go ahead. So as I've often said over the past 40 years, the very, 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 very thing that we fear the most is the very, 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 very quintessential requirement for anything to change in our life, and that is to change. To change the way we perceive ourselves and ourself in relationship with others and the world, and to change the way we do it. Fundamental physics states the surest way to have your life go on the way it always has is to keep doing it the way you have always done it. So, all that we have learned about ourselves to date have been, has been just that, a learning process whereby we have habitually committed to beliefs and opinions and thoughts and paradigms from a culture of fear, a culture that not only is a culture of fear, but sustains itself by creating more fear. And the word fear I use accurately because it includes not only what we often think about when we are fearful, when we are experiencing fear, but even the more subtle realities. For example, I've often been heard to say, that world economies would collapse if we were all to get this. And the reason why world economies will collapse is because those economies, our economy in this country, that is always generating so much fear in its citizenry, is dependent upon a myth. It is dependent upon you believing regularly you lack. Because if we can convince you that you are not good enough, we can sell you any product that we can also convince you will make you more, will make you better, will make you different. But the bottom line is that fundamental to all Buddhist teachings, we are both cause and solution to our suffering. You and I create the experience we call suffering within ourselves either through our participation of this cultural myth that we often accept as truth or real, or again, through our complacency, that is to say, not doing anything to bring about the changes that only we can bring about. Once again, unique to Buddha Dharma, the role of the teacher when you come here to train and to become a member, I've been saying the same thing over the past 30-some years, and that is there is no magic here, and I am not a magician. The role of the teacher 
is to simply give you the tools. In the end, you must awaken. You must use the means, apply the means to making the necessary changes. So as I said earlier this evening, the world we often accept as the real world is an illusion, as the Buddha would say. It is a created world. It is not the real world. The real world, the world you and I are a part of, we come from and return to after death, that world is a world of abundance, prosperity, loving kindness, compassion, and all, the, and all of the myriad of forms that manifest that world through their existence possess inherently those qualities. We are born inherently with the wisdom, the knowledge, the understanding, the compassion, the love, the lovability, and the joy that we are ever going to gain in our lifetime. Nothing can be added, the Buddha said, that makes us any better, and nothing can be taken from our intrinsic reality that could make us any less. This is our true nature. And when we create a lifestyle for ourselves, grounded in that essence, grounded in our basic goodness, always coming from that place, Everything we do takes on a different nature, takes on a different experience. We begin to live life fully just for the sake of life, not to get anything, not to achieve anything. And when you sit down, you know, wine connoisseurs will tell you that the secret to being a wine connoisseur, the training of a wine connoisseur, involves the ability to taste the wine directly. And the way you taste the wine directly. If you ever watch these guys in a wine tasting, they're literally able, they have trained their palate to taste every different grape exactly as that grape tastes. And often when I've observed that I've wondered, you know, doesn't anything overlap? But the reason why they uh, bring in huge salaries for what they do is because they have trained themselves to experience the flavor of the grape directly, despite the, uh, the grape that they may have tasted prior to that moment. Living life in that way, life takes on a completely different flavor. Most of us, when we go to a restaurant, for example, because of our conditioning, and sit down to eat a meal, never really taste the meal. What we eat and taste is the menu because we are bringing some kind of expectation of the meal that literally flavors for us what our palate will taste in that moment. To liberate ourselves from that conditioning that affects us in something minutely subtle as tasting wine or food, to really experiencing the real world that is abundant and wondrous, the world that children experience, the world of, you know, calling us to explore and experience directly. To do that requires a willingness on my part to be fully committed to the work of changing or redirecting my life back to that moment that, you know, the media calls enlightenment, which is really nothing more, and I don't say it that way to diminish how important it is because 
It's everything, nothing more than remembering what we have simply forgotten. From the beginning, the key to renewal has been shedding, the casting off of old skin. The Polynesians say the world began with Ta'ara, their name for the creator, woke to find himself growing inside a shell. He stretched and broke the shell, and the earth was created. Tora kept growing, though and after a time found himself inside another shell. Again, he stretched and broke the shell, and this time the moon was created. Again, Tora kept growing, and again he found himself contained by yet another shell. This time the breaking forth created the stars. In this ancient story, the Polynesians have carried for us the wisdom that we each grow in this life by breaking successive shells, that the peace of God within each of us stretches until there's no room to be, and then the world as we know it must be broken so that we can be born anew. In this way, life becomes a living of who we are until that form of self can no longer hold us. And like Ta'ora, in his shell, we must break the forms that contain us in order to birth our way into the next self. <coughs> this is how we shed our many ways of seeing the world. Not that any are false, but that each serves its purpose for a time until we grow and they no longer serve us. I have lived through many selves, the first of me so eager to be great, to set things ablaze, shunned everything that was ordinary. I hunted the burn of a champion's hip and wanted to be a great musician too, to be famous and extraordinary. But as I grew, the notion of fame left me lonely in the night. Thrones, no matter how pretty, have only room for one. The second of me wanted to be covered by waves, inhale the stars, and move like a song. Now I wanted to be the great music itself, but to be the great thing was still as lonely as it was magnificent. The third of me gave up greatness. It was how I let others draw close. I asked more questions, not really interested in answers, but more the face below the face about to speak. And then during my cancer, there came yet another self. There, bent and distorted in the hospital chrome as the late sun flooded my pillow. I was dead in the chrome alive on the pillow, a quiet breath between dead and alive at once. And oddly, it did not scare, for I felt the pulse of life in the quiet breath, and the place to which I transcended is here. Almost dying was another shell I had to break. It has led me to realize that each self unfolds, just one concentric womb en route to another, each encompassing the last. I would believe in arrival, but for all the arrivals, 
I've broken on the way. Dogen Zen master of ancient Japanese Zen Buddhism says, this self I call myself does not exist. Our stuckness we often experience, our malaise, our fear, is the fear of being isolated, stuck, and limited by our own limitations. Limitations grounded in a conditioning that again we have ignorantly or unknowingly, immaturely, accepted to be true and to be real. Our freedom is just a breath away. As Abraham Lincoln stated, I believe people are as happy as they choose to be. I believe at any moment we can liberate ourselves, be reborn in the real sense of the word, renewed, refreshed, awakened, and return to that which we have been pursuing and seeking in all the wrong places, and that is ourself. One of the examples I've often used over the years to prove that what is most important to us is to find ourselves is the example of if I promised you that Daiko was about to take a group photograph of you and everyone else in this room tonight. And when you came back at the next Zen chat, that photograph would be wall to wall behind me. And you walked through that door and looked for it. Who would you be looking for? We are always looking for ourselves because we have a sense that we have lost ourselves. And in one sense, we are correct. We lose ourselves in the many selves of our conditioning. The path towards liberating ourselves has been given many names. The one in particular I use is the dawning of the mass. Early on in our life, we are frightened out of ourselves. And because of that conditioning to have someone really accept us, really want us, really love us, we take on the personalities and characters of many other persons and many other characters, hoping that one of them will cause that to happen. When in reality, it never happens. Because the last person we always betray is not others, but ourselves. And until we reunite with who we truly are, which is this awakening to our true nature, Buddhism talks about, that discontentment continues. We first step out of ourselves into these roles and then continue to reinforce their false reality for ourselves, cementing them into stone as true identities through habitually acting and behaving in ways throughout the years that support, nurture, and cultivate the ground for their existence. The only way we can change that is to habitually create conducive environments by habitually behaving in ways that empower us, that free us, and liberate us from those behaviors that keep us cemented in those false uh, figures, stones, and idols. You know, in the Torah, we hear the commandment, 
Thou shalt not create unto thyself any graven idol and bow down and worship that idol. And that sin was the gravest of all the sins, if you will. And the idol that that commandment refers to is that false self, is that self that is conditioned and created, not the self we were born with. So the first embrace requires a willingness on my part to consider the possibility that who I am is not who I truly am, that who I claim to be has nothing to do, be, to do with who I am. And after years and years of conditioning, even the choices, the goals, and the objectives that I set up for myself really have nothing to do with my truest and deepest desire, which is to truly be free, to truly be who I am. We, again, make that shift early on age, create lifestyles to support those false identities, those idols, setting them up as gods in our life because those identities literally determine for us not only what I will experience in this moment, but what I'm permitted to experience, just like you would expect any god to have such power. We break our attachment to those gods alone and on our own two feet the moment we choose to redirect our attention from the world out here as the source of our happiness to the world in here. Atta Deepa, rely on yourself. The role of the teacher, the role of the spiritual community is to give us the means to do that and to create what the Buddha called the place of refuge, a safe place for us to practice and train in that until we have achieved it. But in the end, it's entirely up to you. It's entirely up to you. We begin, as I said, by choosing to behave. Thought, speech, and action is involved. Everything we are at this moment begins with a thought about ourselves. Earlier tonight, I said to you that the general thought if you will, the context of most of our thinking that generates that stress and that anxiety, that worryment, that sense of lack, the umbrella thought of that is that I am not enough. I am not enough. That I am always lacking, whether it's in intelligence, whether it's in talent, whether it's in my lovability or my lovingness, whatever it is for you. And that always shapes and forms in a thought of criticism, where we are critical towards ourselves. We, we fail, we don't succeed, we make a mistake, and we become very judgmental towards ourselves. When that thought rises, we do not engage it. We simply notice it is present. And when you notice it is present, you will also notice that it has a life of its own. How many of us would choose to berate ourselves in our thinking, you see, would actually make that choice? So in Zen training, you become very familiar with the mechanics of the mind and its thinking, this nature. And one of the things that you become really familiar with, if you don't already sense it now, is that thoughts have a life of their own. I will always be fearful of something but I don't have to respond from that place. I will always 
think critical, but I don't have to act from that place. This self, when I realize, is not fixed and limited by conditions, this true self. I can feel fearful, but act from a place of fearlessness. We sometimes would call that courage. We sometimes call that bravery. Courage and bravery is not conditional. If it were, people would die in burning buildings. Courage and bravery is simply this. Most of the people we often consider to be heroes, we often create this, uh, you know, again, pedestal for them to live from. And we think that their act of courage in that moment was a function of not being afraid of what they had to do. No, the truly courageous person is scared to death and still does what is necessary. I call that Nike Buddhism. Just do it, you see? So when I feel, when I'm thinking fearful, when I'm worried, I detach myself from the effect of those thoughts by not responding from a place of fearfulness and a place of worryment. You see? And you can only master this by, through again, deep meditation training where you become familiar with, as Mark Nepo writes about it in the words I just shared with, all the different selves we really are. This self I call myself does not exist because the self I often call myself I experience as fixed and limited by feelings and emotions, what Einstein called an optical delusion, you see. The Buddha called these things um, uh, uh, delusional impulses. We, we, we act to fear through a delusional impulse. We think in the moment that that's all there is, is fear. I can feel fear. I can even feel resentment towards someone. Forgiveness, most people have a problem with forgiveness, A, because they don't understand what forgiveness really is, and B, because they think they have to feel forgiving in order to forgive. Real forgiveness is not conditional. I can choose to forgive any time if I know how to. The same is true about love. What we call unconditional love is nothing more than the choice to love without the presence of a particular condition. Unconditional anything is just that. To act friendly whether or not I may like this person or, to, or not. One of the promises I make to my daughter is that even though I may not feel loving and patient with you in the moment, I will act patiently and loving towards you. I will do that. And in those times, and this is all part of the plan of action, in those times that I may fail to do that, I clean up my mess. Because as a human being, I will fail to do that. I am made up of an equal amount of successes and failures. And so are you. Get with the program. Okay? And so mistakes and failures are not conclusions. They're just what's going on in the moment. So the practice is to commit to loving kindness. But if in a moment I fail in being loving or kind, I just need to clean up my mess. 
I need to take responsibility for that and just clean up my mess. The first person you need to be unconditionally kind to is yourself. So you begin tonight by declaring a commitment to be your best friend. If you're not going to be your best friend, who will? Who will? My father, who is a very, very successful businessman, built his own empire from nothing. One of those stories, he's 85, came out of the Depression, came out of the coal mines of Pennsylvania, built his empire, tells a story of a gentleman who he first worked for at 16 when he came to Philadelphia. And this man hired him to do some work at his trucking company. And uh, when it was all over, the man asked my father, uh, so how much do you want for what you just did? And my father's response was, well, whatever you want to pay me. And he said to him, come in here. I want you to sit down. I want you to listen to me. And my father will tell you today that he owes this lesson. He owes this man everything for his success. Because it was this lesson that he learned the most important lesson. And what Mr. Levin said to him was this. He said, if you don't value your work, I won't. If you don't value your service, I won't. And he never forgot that lesson, he'll tell you. Never forgot that. If you don't value your right to be kind to yourself, if you don't think you merit kindness, no one else will. No one else will. So the first thing is to, again, be kind to yourself. When you fail, just clean up your mess. That's all you got to do. Just clean up your mess. That's all you got to do. You don't need to get critical. You don't need to get judgmental. That's all part of the conditioning of a world that wants to keep you, of a culture, that wants to keep you experiencing yourself as this failing person who needs something outside themselves to be better. Feel the love within you and be that love. You know how you want to be loved. Treat yourself accordingly. Treat yourself accordingly. Know the love you need and give it to yourself. If you don't give it to yourself, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. And the only way, and this happens, yes, at a level of unconsciousness, at that mystical level. Remember what I said earlier about how children know you can't con them? There's some other intuitive uh, qualities that we have. And one of them is this. I will love you in direct proportion that I watch you love you. That I watch you love you. So you need to teach me how to love you by the way you love you. And that's one of the quintessential uh, components of a successful relationship. One of the mistakes we make because we often think of love only at a sentimental level is that when someone, when we say to someone, I love you, they know what we mean or vice versa. So I often tell people in relationship seminars, when they tell you, I love you, you need to say, what do you mean? You're saying? Most of the time you're going to find out it's not what you thought. <laughs> you're saying? 
But if I'm going to work with that, I got to know what you mean. You know what I'm saying? So we need to give up our sentimental, you know, as they say, when you assume what happens. Yeah. Well, we so easily assume that I love you means the same thing to everybody. It doesn't. So one of the practices I have in any relationship is I want clarity in what you're talking about. You know, you and I got to sit down and have a conversation. Now, what do you mean when you say you love me? And here's what I mean when I say I love you. Now we got something to work with. Always give yourself a break. Lighten the hell up. The Buddha said, life involves enough suffering. We don't need to add to it. Give it a break. Okay? Now, if you need a reason for giving it a break that you can really build on, really build on, not some kind of, again, sentimental or philosophical, you can really build on this. You, will, you can go through your whole life doing it right, and you will die. You can go through your whole life doing it wrong, and you will die. Life and death, which is all we've got to work with, doesn't care. Doesn't care whether you did it right or wrong. Lighten up. Give yourself a break. Embrace yourself, which means, and here's where it gets really tough. Spend some time, quality time, real quality time, alone with yourself. The people who don't know how to behave appropriately with others are people that can't be alone. And if you know somebody who absolutely cannot spend time alone, do not invest in a relationship. If you can't be alone with yourself, you can't be with me. You, not just me. You can't be with anybody. Spending time alone with yourself is essential. One, it is conducive for getting to know what you need. I mean, think about it. You go through the day rushing, 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 rushing. You do it seven days a week, 12 months out of the year, every year of your life, and you never take time to stop and consider, all right, what's going on here? Until it becomes tragic. Every week, at least, once a week, cut off the phone, cut off the telephone, you know, put down the iPad, put down the iPhone, put down the email, and spend some quiet time alone with yourself. Always, 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 and, and you need to know I start my morning, throughout the day I continue to be mindful of this, and before I go to sleep tonight I will do it again. Be grateful. I know you've heard that before, you've read it, gratitude, 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 but I really mean that. Be grateful. We always have something to be grateful for. Always. When you consider the various forms of suffering in the world, and the Buddha wrote this wonderful poem about that, you know, where, for example, he said, and I'm paraphrasing, so you woke up sick today? Well, at least you woke up. Saying. So you woke up and the arthritis was hurting your legs? Well, at least you got legs. 
you're saying? There's never a reason to not be grateful. And I will tell you, if you start focusing every day when the mind wants to take you to criticism and judgment about your life and focus on the stuff you're grateful for, watch what will happen. Watch what will happen. This consciousness we call universe, God, Buddha, nature, loves a grateful heart and will do anything for the one who's grateful. Anything. Gave me the greatest gift of my life, my daughter. And every single day throughout the day, I pray in gratitude for her. And every single day so far, as they say, it's wondrous with her. Be grateful. You brought me you. Every day I pray for you. Every day I'm grateful for you. And when you hear me say to you, from the bottom of my heart, it's been a privilege, you need to know that's true. And you keep coming back. And I don't have to make you. You see? Never did. Never did. Give yourself in service to others. If you're not involved helping someone else with their life, you need to get involved. Give yourself in service to others. And this is a problem I want to talk about. Either you've already received it, or you will before you leave the flyer on becoming a member. I want everybody in this room to become a member here. And here's one of the reasons why. And it has nothing to do with you becoming a member exclusively of, of the Zen Society. It has to do with that, but it also has to do with this. Nothing's going to change in your life if you keep doing things because they do for you. You see? The way we often give of ourselves is what we get from that. Okay? So the service that Buddhism talks about when it says give of yourself in service to others is like give of yourself in service to something that you may never get anything from, but others will benefit from it. When the Buddha first established the community of the Buddha Dharma, it was intended to be exclusively for monks only, monks and nuns. Buddhism was a monastic tradition originally. As the Buddha Dharma spread throughout the land and more and more lay people became interested, he had to come up with a formula because he knew they weren't going to come and practice at the monastery like the monks do, which is essential. So how can they achieve enlightenment? And the model that he set up was that the lay community gave of themselves in service to the monastic community by supporting that community so that their work extended their energy, their peace of mind, extended out into the villages that surrounded those monasteries. So one of the things that I often say to people when it comes to being a member, we don't decide to go and participate in something because we like it solely. We think about those times also that we may want to show up and get nothing out of it, but someone else gets something from it. That's what we mean by real service. Real service is to give of yourself even if you get nothing from it. We also call that love. Every moment, choose it. And you need to choose the moment this way. Whatever happens to you in any given moment, choose it as an opportunity and a possibility, not oppositional to your life. Our conditioning has taught us that bad times are oppositional. No, they're not. 
the difficult taxing times is the time to break out of the shell. That's the message. When life is difficult for you, it's an opportunity to become bigger than you ever were. You and I never learned how to do anything without difficulty. All the stuff that has made us who we are, we're taxing. A child learns how to walk by falling on its face. You're saying? So we need to see the taxing stuff in our life from a different place. Possibility. So when the tough times come, it's an opportunity for you to find out you're a Buddha, you can handle it. And most of you will never have that level of self-confidence, not because you can't, but because you won't stop retreating from the difficult stuff. Stop retreating. Every difficult thing that shows up in our life is our teacher. It's the lesson we are to learn in that moment. And if we face it with all of the fear and all of the self-doubt and everything else, you know what the Zen masters taught was absolutely necessary in order to achieve enlightenment? Self-doubt. They would say, muster up a great doubt. Now practice. You see? Don't trust anything and practice. St. Augustine said, love God and do what you want. He meant the same thing. So difficult times, possibilities, opportunity. Every single day of your life starting tomorrow morning, you can start tonight if you like. I'm here. Commit a self, an act of self-love every day. Every day of your life. Do something for yourself every day. Not selfishly, not self-centeredly, but do yourself. And it could be just simply giving yourself a break from all the storytelling of criticism and judgment. Every day of your life, commit an act of self-love. Every day of your life, and if not every day, at least once. I was uh, in the company of a Hasidic rabbi once and talking about Zen and he talking about asceticism. And he told me about a practice that they have that is also practiced in Zen monasteries in Japan. In Zen monasteries in Japan, everybody has a work assignment, including the Roshi. The Roshi always gets the same work assignment. Those of you who've heard me say this, shut up. Anyone else know what that is? The Roshi cleans the outhouse. The outhouse, not the bathroom, the outhouse. So he's got to go remove the, the, the dumpings, and he's got, that's his job. In, Hasidic, in, in the Hasidic community, the rabbi, once a year, must cut himself off from the community and be an absolute fool and do everything that he would not do the rest of the year. So the practice is connect with your inner child often. Be a fool. Look stupid. Let yourself go. Just like my daughter who has no, no hesitation of putting wigs on my hair and lipstick on my lips and dressing me up for tea parties. You see? And she's like, well, what's the matter? Dad? Nothing wrong. You look cute. <laughs> what's the matter? You look great. 
Connect with your inner child often. Be the fool. This should uh, not surprise you, or maybe it will. Exercise. Believe it or not, the Buddha, the Buddha, the Buddha, Buddha yeah, the Buddha, Buddha, the Buddha <laughs> promoted exercise. The Buddha promoted exercise as part of the community life. He would say every day the monks are required to get up, he would say, and take a long walk up and a long walk back. See? Exercise, the body is essential. This is another one that he promoted, get enough sleep. But the sleep when he talked about was not quantity as quality. But that naturally comes when you meditate. Meditate, 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 meditate. The Buddha's last words on his dying bed was Atadipa. I know that my last words will be <laughs> I know. It is the most difficult lesson for me to convince people about in 40 years. Play with perspective. Play with perspective. What does that mean? Tell the truth. Be who you really are and play your life out with proper perspective. Don't build yourself up to be something you're not, and don't put yourself down to be something you're not. Live your life playing and working with proper perspective. And this last one is certainly not least. Uh, I think it's one that per, you know, pervades and must run through all the others. And we have, as a culture, as a society, as a nation, as, a, as individuals, as people, stop doing this. And if there's anything I can lay upon you as essential in addition to meditation and the other practices, it's this. Dream. Dream. When Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, his brother Ted Kennedy gave one of the most beautiful eulogies I ever heard given. And he quoted, talking about his brother in this way. He said, Some men see things as they are and ask why. My brother dreamed of things that are not and asked, why not? That's what I mean by dreaming. Dream the best of yourself. Dream the best of the world. Have your dreams. Don't stop dreaming. I have dreamt this whole thing. When people ask me, how did this happen 40 years ago? I dreamed it, and I keep dreaming it. I dream of you. I, dream of, I dreamt of this place. I dream, dream, dreamt it all. Dream. Dream of a world of loving kindness and compassion. Don't give up your dreams. If you give up your dreams, they are gone. Nobody will pick them up for you. Dream. Don't stop dreaming. Dream. Thank you for the privilege of being with you.